Uh, if you are a visitor here with us this morning, you are jumping in mid-conversation. We've been talking about courage and fear in the Bible. And so far in this uh, series, uh, we have talked about the command to fear not, the most common command in the Bible. We've talked about the fear of man. We've talked about the fear of the unknown. We've talked about the fear of death. And we've talked about the fear of need. And these things are things that just we will all experience. We're all very prone to fear because we're not like God. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam ate of the fruit, he, the sin that he committed, and we've pointed this out ad nauseum at this point. You guys have heard this a bunch. The sin that he committed was deciding it would be better to be a God than to continue trusting in God. And all of us in our fears are like sheep who wish we were like the shepherd. Rather than trusting in the shepherd, we wish we were shepherd-like. And so the point that we have rammed home time and time again over the course of this series is that although you lack God-like powers, you don't lack God. And whenever we're tempted to fear, we are presented with an opportunity to reject what Adam embraced. Instead of saying it would be better to be God-like than to continue trusting in God, when you experience a fear, whatever it is, it is an opportunity to say, I will rest in the shepherd. I don't want to be shepherd-like. I'm so glad I will celebrate the promises that have been made to be by my shepherd God and to rest in those, to believe them. And that's really, I think, the struggle when we come to fear. Now, this morning... I am talking to a group of people who are discerning, who watch the news, who are part of the culture, and I'm going to speak something that is a wild understatement. The trajectory of this thing is not good. Do you, do you feel it? As you're out navigating the culture, is it, would anybody... Don't raise your hand. Talk to me privately afterwards. It would ruin the sermon. <laughs> I'd be interested, though, if anybody feels optimistic about the trajectory of things spiritually among the people that we're living in. I would love to hear your perspective if you feel that way. I don't feel that way. And oftentimes, as I look around at the culture, uh, the greatest thing that I feel as far as fear is I have six children. And um, I just feel tempted, I'm tempted to feel some fear about the culture. And this morning, I want to share with you, I think, some helpful tips from the life of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about how to live with a countercultural courage. And I think one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have this conversation this morning is because of, there's an old Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the second best time is today. <laughs> and my, my personal conviction is, is that we are coming to a place where the best time to have begun certain strategies for living the Christian life with a countercultural courage to build those practices and disciplines into our life, maybe I'm talking to you 20 years before you need them. That's possible. 
And I want you to entertain the possibility with me as we enter God's word this morning that God is drawing us into a conversation in time for a season that will be needed. And so I want to begin with that thought. And we begin this morning with the opening words of the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Uh, we'll stop right there for just a second. Uh, we're not going to be studying the life of Daniel and his three friends in a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter kind of way. Uh, but if you're not familiar with their story, it's a great read. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel um, is, is really, in addition to being very significant spiritually and meaningful and helpful to us, it's also just a great read. So if you're not familiar with that story, I encourage you to to read that, it's in the Old Testament book of Daniel, the first six chapters. We're going to be kind of jumping around, but that's the opening words of the book. And uh, it's written there, again, I, I do this quite often, but I, I just find we have to peel back the dry, dusty layers of these historical facts and look at this in terms of the raw human emotion. Uh, the nation is overthrown. Uh, The social fabric is done away with, not just changing underneath their feet, but a completely new order comes in overnight. Children are ripped away from their parents, taken off to re-education camps, essentially. If I think about my kids, I have worries about the public school system, (laughs) but if my kids were forcibly removed from my home, taken to another country... And there they were subjected to a long three-year assault on their consciences. I mean, my, I don't know if I could survive it. It just is terrible to think about. It's a, it, what, is, what is being described in these few short, terse sentences is a whole world of raw human emotion, pain, deep concern. How many prayers were thrown up in the midst of this chaos and disorder. It's a frightening time. And these four young men who were taken away are four of many. Uh, These were not the only four. There were a great many young people who were taken away. This was a a practice in the ancient world. They They would remove the children of the upper class, uh, with the idea that it would leave the people easier to subjugate. They would be left without leadership. 
They would be left without people to rally around. Let's just take, let's do a big brain drain and take away the families and things that the people are, are habituated to looking toward for leadership. So it's a really pragmatic decision Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's kneecapping the people in terms of their ability to rally around people or, or families to kind of rebuild their society. He wants them to become assimilated and think of themselves as his subjects. And so he does this, this thing where he removes all these people and takes them back to Babylon. So there they are taken away into exile along with many others. And these four men are then subjected to a sustained assault on their consciences. I don't think that's too melodramatic a way of putting it. The Babylonians would rename them. They would say, you're no longer going to be called by the name that your parents gave you. That's no longer your identity. It is as if Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you're my property now. I own you. I will name you what I choose. And they would seek to retrain their minds away from the values and traditions and stories that had been instilled in them by their parents in the community in which they had been raised in Judah. They would try to replace those values with their own, those stories with their stories of their own people. These four men would go down in history as remaining faithful to their God while living and working in the midst of a culture that was openly antagonistic to their values and beliefs. This is a story of extraordinary countercultural courage. And so I want to give you three things that I see in the life of Daniel and his friends, three things that are, I think, helpful strategies for us to consider and build into our own lives in the midst of a culture that is, I think, frighteningly similar. I hope that's not too melodramatic. Uh, I think older generations in the church would oftentimes talk about America in a way that they seem to align it, not intellectually maybe, but just in terms of feeling with Israel. They, they would talk about America as, this, uh, as, a, as a place that stood up for what's right and, and good. And I think that this generation is growing up to look at the culture that they're living in more as Babylon. And I think the grow, this feeling is growing that the church is more of an exile community than anything else, a people within a people and so we come to these three strategies that Daniel and his friends, at least that I see, there might be more, and maybe in your reading of it, you would come away with others, would love to hear that. But here are three that I see that I want to share with you this morning. The first is to form some good resolves. Right now in the relative peace and comfort of today, I think we need to form some resolves, some purposes in our heart for what we will not do in the culture. Early on in the book of Daniel, we discover that this is one of the keys to their success at remaining faithful to their God while living in the midst of Babylonian culture. Verse 8 of chapter 1 says this, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And the word that we should key in on here is resolved. Your version might say that he purposed in his heart. Either way, the idea here is that Daniel lived with a thoughtful intentionality. 
And this found expression in specific commitments or resolves that he made. Quick aside, it's November, guys. How are your New Year's resolutions going? <laughs> Nervous laughter from the... <laughs> Some of you are trying real hard to remember what your New Year's resolutions were. That's how bad it is. What, what did I decide to do? I've only ever maintained one New Year's resolution all the way through the year. It's a bit weird. I have a problem where when I eat, I spill food on my shirt. So one year, I was like, I'm not going to do that this year. I didn't not do it, but I did it less. It was pretty good. I'm notorious. Is that weird? That's a little weird what we just did there. I, uh, I'm notorious for starting those kinds of things and failing them, just giving up on them shortly after starting. I mean, how many gym memberships have been purchased in January and are not being used in March? It happens, right? Diets, musical instruments, things we start but don't keep up on. It happens. But Daniel here resolved, okay, he, he's looking at things and God has given him supernatural insight to say, okay, this is going to be a testing point. And when that testing point comes, I'm not going to do this thing. Not going to do it. Now, within the very narrow context where these verses occur, the resolve that Daniel has formed is not to eat foods or drink wines that come from the king's table. Uh, how these foods would have defiled him, I'm not sure. Uh, the text doesn't, say, doesn't make that explicitly clear. Maybe they contained ingredients that would have been forbidden under Jewish dietary law. That's a possibility. It could have been possible that the food or the wine uh, were produced in a way that was a byproduct of some sort of religious uh, practice. Maybe it was an offering to the gods that then made its way onto the table, which then made it to them. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't make it explicitly clear. All we know is that Daniel was looking at either the foods and how they were prepared or their ingredients or something like that, and he felt in his heart that to consume them would have been an act of sin against his God. And he resolved, I'm not going to do that. This is a remarkably brave statement in light of where Daniel is in life. Does not have his family. Uh, he is in the hands of a, a ruthless dictator, uh, maybe for lack of a better word, a man who is very violent. <laughs> he has nothing. Maybe it's easier. Maybe we might say it's easier for him because he has nothing to lose. I don't think that's entirely true. I think a lot of people would have been bullied in Daniel's circumstances. It's impressive to me that Daniel says, no matter what happens, I'm not going to do this thing. This was Daniel's view of it. But I think this verse about Daniel forming a resolve about this food issue specifically provides a broader insight into Daniel's strategy to live with countercultural courage in a context where the broader current of the culture... And the institutions of that society and those who exercised powers within those institutions not only did not share his values, but were hostile to them. And the relevance for us today should be obvious because we too are living as strangers and exiles in this land. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Uh, The interesting thing about this moment in Daniel's life for me is that it really is such a small matter, isn't it? Uh, Very often, like when I'm, this matter of the food, I'll eat it or I won't. This is, it is a small thing. And I think this is kind of the point. Now, honestly, this food issue, does that seem to you like a hill worth dying on? Tell me, what matter of conviction would you be willing to lose your job for? What would you be willing to die for? There are gradations of seriousness to us. And I think one of the things we have to see about Daniel is he doesn't say, I'll go with you in sin to a certain point. But at that point, I'm going to be a true God follower. <laughs> no, he, he says, I'm not going to go along from the start. If you tell me that in order to live and thrive and prosper in the midst of this culture, I have to compromise what I know to be true, I'll have none of it. I'll die or I'll live in the gutter or whatever. I'll lose my job. Am I willing to do that? I'm very convicted by Daniel because he makes this first stand over such a small issue. I might have been tempted if I were in his shoes to say, I'm not going to worship your gods, but I'll eat the stinking food. (laughs) It looks pretty good anyway. Right? But he doesn't do that. We might say, choose your battles, Daniel. It's going to be a long haul. There's going to be a lot of stuff that comes up. Just eat the food and live to fight another day. But we shouldn't view it that way. Being faithful in the big things begins with faithfulness in the small things. And I think the church is full of people today who would die for Jesus, but who won't live for Him in the day-to-day. James Montgomery Boyce reminds us, he says, Well, it was a small thing, yet that is just the point. For it is in the small matters that great victories are won. This is where decisions to live a holy life are made, not in the big things, but in the details of life. Sinclair Ferguson, he says this about this moment in Daniel's life. For the child of God, some things cannot be negotiated or compromised. From the outset, therefore, he refused the court's delicacies. In many ways, his usefulness in the kingdom of God throughout the rest of the book depends on this single decision. Had he not made it or even left it until later while he maneuvered for a position of bargaining strength, he would not have found himself in positions he later occupied, nor would he have been faithful enough to cope with them as he did. Instead, from the beginning, in what to others seemed a trivial matter, he nailed his colors to the mast. In doing so, he gained a bridgehead into enemy-occupied territory and found himself increasingly strong in the Lord. This is a great lesson for all Christians to learn, not least those who are younger and at the beginning of so many new experiences, relationships, occupations, and roles in life. Notice, too, that Daniel did not leave his actions to a spur-of-the-moment response. He purposed or resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself. He'd made a decision before God. 
he'd found one of the great biblical secrets of spiritual success that was better known to our forefathers than it is to us. He entered into a solemn covenant in the presence of God that he would turn away from sinful behavior in whatever form it presented itself. Kind of a lengthy quote there from Sinclair Ferguson, but it gets right to the heart of the issue what we're talking about here. So that's the first thing I think we should see here is that Daniel was the sort of guy who formed resolves. Uh, God gave him insight into what was coming and he thought in advance about how he was going to respond and what he was willing to suffer for taking that stand. And I think these are similar days for us. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12, it says, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Every resolve for good. There is a place in the Christian life for forming resolves between you and God. Here's the second thing I see in the book of Daniel that's a huge, enormous help um, for living with countercultural courage. By the way, I didn't finish that story. Uh, you'll have to go back and read it yourself. If the story of him refusing to eat the king's food, that's a great story. Don't have much time to spend on it now. He doesn't eat the king's food. He starts a vegetarian diet and works out good for him. Maybe I should try it. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. But go ahead and read that. That's in chapter 1 of the book of Daniel. We're going to move on, though. Here's another thing I see. And the second thing, so the first thing is let's form some good resolves. The second is we need to form some good friendships. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we read this, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. He had built this huge idol and, and brought everybody who's anybody out onto the plain there and said that when the musical instruments start to play, everybody needs to bow down and worship. And I wish I could have been like a, a flea on a dog or something or a, some observer on a rock to see what happens because everybody starts to bow down and there's these three guys who are just standing up. That would have been a beautiful, I would love to have a photograph of that moment. I think it would have been very striking. But word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the boss man himself, that these three guys dared defy his royal order to pay homage and worship what the, this thing he had set up. So Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not, you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Is that true? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, what a statement. <laughs> it went too far right there, Nebuchadnezzar. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Uh, another wonderful moment from the story of Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel. Just a Sunday school tailor-made, just, just his screams put me on a flannel graph. Uh, just want to get kids gathered around this story. Great story. We're going to be talking about this a little bit at Hide and Seek Club on Tuesday night. Looking forward to it. The only observation I want to make here, there's so much we could draw out of this story. We could probably spend a month of Sundays on the story of the fiery furnace. The thing I just wanted to mention, though, is that we never hear of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in isolation from one another. They're always mentioned as a group. They were friends. Now, we just spent a fair number of Sundays toward the end of the summer on our One Another series. Back then, we studied some of the great one another passages in the Bible, those times where God, in His Word, calls us to be certain people to one another and with one another. And in the midst of that conversation, I don't know about you, but God just really uh, filled my heart with this beautiful vision of what church could be, should be, and maybe that I've tasted of in some small way, but I want more. And I think, I don't want to belabor the point too much this morning because we've already spent so much in recent Sundays talking about being one another people, but I think we need to stop and see the necessity of having Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednegoes in our lives ourselves. Back then, we saw that necessity. It's a very important means of grace to us by our God to help us persevere in the faith in the midst of this fallen world. On one of those Sundays back then, we talked about having fellowship with one another. The Greek word most commonly translated as fellowship is koinonia. And down through the years here, we've talked a lot about koinonia here at State Road. This is the Greek word for fellowship. Back in 2018, I shared with you a quote from David Mathis, and I want to share it again this morning because I think it has bearing on this idea of holding on to a countercultural courage. I think what we need in the face of a hostile culture is to find another culture. Not for the purpose of escapism or retreating away into it, but we need a a group to which we are accountable. You see, I don't want us to become people who just say, I don't care what people think. No, we shouldn't be hard-hearted like that. I care what God thinks. I care what people who have a Bible-shaped conscience think. I should care. You're designed in a way to be part of a group and to be held accountable by it. This is something, but it becomes perverted and twisted when we take that away from the church and we put that kind of weight and concern on the culture to shape us. But we do need another culture to go to, to be accountable to, to encourage us and help shape us. Remember that Jesus, when he sent out the disciples, he sent them out in groups of two. It wasn't good for them to go by themselves. They needed somebody else. And so, no, I don't want to advocate the church as a place to escape or retreat away from the culture, but it's a place to be necessarily equipped and built up to go back out. 
Uh, No ship is designed to stay in harbor all of its days. The harbor is a place where it goes to be repaired, to be loaded up with good things, but of course it's there to venture out again. And that's how it is with the church. We need a culture to turn to for our work out in that culture as well. David Mathis points out that J.R. Tolkien, who introduced the world to hobbits and Middle-earth, called the group of nine companions whose mission it was to help Frodo along the way to help destroy... Is anybody here not familiar with the Lords of the Ring? If so, this just took a weird, nerdy turn, this sermon. (laughs) You guys are like, Frodo, where is that in the Bible? The Book of Mordor. No. There's... (laughs) There's this book called The Hobbit, if you're not familiar with it. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a classic, at least I think it's classic. And in that book, there's the Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo has to go and cast this ring into the volcano of Mordor, and he has these nine companions who come along him to help him in this journey to cast the ring into Mordor. Some of you are like, I can't think with all this nerd noise. No, but... But that picture of fellowship that exists in the Fellowship of the Ring uh, seems closest, and and, uh, Mathis points this out, to what the biblical writers meant when they spoke of koinonia, fellowship. And it reminds me, quite honestly, of our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mathis writes, it's an all-in, life-or-death, collective venture in the face of great evil and overwhelming opposition. True fellowship is less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl and more like players on the field in blood, sweat, and tears huddled in the backfield only in preparation for the next down. True fellowship is more the invading troops side by side on the beach at Normandy than it is the gleeful revelers in the street on VE Day. That's what Mathis says, and I really like that quote. It's true. It helps me reframe the way I think about fellowship and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the need for those kind of people if I am to hold on to a countercultural courage in the years ahead. Now, many Christians, I think, have difficulty feeling the need for that kind of koinonia, fellowship of the ring kind of fellowship. And perhaps if you're honest, some of you probably find all this talk as kind of melodramatic and over the top. And the reason why some of us might feel this way is because of those analogies. Did Mathis really say life and death? Did he really say we are confronted by great evil and overwhelming opposition? Did he really speak of casting rings into Mordor, blood, sweat, and tears, landing at Normandy, Are these things really good descriptions of the Christian life? Is that true to my experience? Come on, we might say. Are these things in any way representative of your experience in the church? Being a Christian in the experience of many has not been scary or costly or overly difficult. And we might have trouble feeling a need for koinonia fellowship. Sure, we like friends, we like gatherings, we like special events at church, but side by side at Normandy? Come on, let's not get carried away. But consider this. 
Numerous times in the New Testament, Satan is called the God of this world or the ruler of this world. Three times in the book of John, Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world. And by that, he meant that Satan is the major influence on the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people. His influence also encompasses the world's philosophies, education, commerce, political movements. The thoughts, ideas, speculations of false religions of the world are under his control and have sprung up from his lies and deceptions. If Satan fancies himself the ruler of this world, then that would mean that for God to move himself into the world was what? It was an invasion. That was (laughs) D-Day. That was Normandy. Christmas, the beach landing, was in a little manger in Bethlehem. That's when God moved himself into the world and began the invasion. And the church today moves forward under the orders of the Great Commission to break the grip of Satan over all these occupied lands, to deliver people who are held in bondage to all kinds of things, out of the darkness and into the light, into freedom. Christians to Satan are invading troops. 2 Corinthians 2 says this, But thanks be to God who always leads us triumphantly as captives in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the sweet aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an odor of death and demise and to the other a fragrance that brings life. Fellow Christian, do you know what you smell like in the nostrils of this world? You stink to high heaven of Jesus. (laughs) Jesus said in John 15, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You smell bad. The church is what represents Christ in this fallen world, and so Satan tries to mar and burn and destroy and bully and silence anything that stands up instead of bows down. So for a Christian to feel no need for a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their life, might I suggest the possibility that that would be like someone saying they feel no need for an umbrella when they're standing inside. It just means they haven't ventured out. However, you can't continue to go with Jesus and stay where you are. Our king is on the march. He's on the move. And if we intend to venture out, out into the harvest, out of our comfort zones, out into world missions, out into the schools or workplace, or the Thanksgiving dinner table at the family reunion, and you're going to bring with you the aroma of Christ with you into those places, following Him as He advances, I think then you begin to see it's not that melodramatic. We need Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednegoes in our lives. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, a passage we studied back during the One Another series, said, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, We need one another. So yes, let's form some good resolves. And yes, let's form some good friendships. And by that I mean men and women who will encourage us toward what's closest to God's heart. Who will hold us accountable when we begin to waver in the face of opposition and temptation. Do you have those people in your life who know you well enough to speak up? I think we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were melded together into a forward unit in this hostile place. And they helped one another. They're always together. And when one didn't bow down, the other ones were like, we're going to stand with you. And I need that. You need that. We all need that. We need another culture to form us as we venture out into this culture with the good news. One last thing that we need to form that we see in the book of Daniel. By the way, you can read the rest of that story too. Great story. Uh, Daniel 3 is where you find that. You need to form some good habits. This is different from resolves, and I'm going to explain how. We advance now to chapter 6, verse 10. This is in the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And again, I don't, need, I don't have time to get into the entirety of the story, but Daniel, it, sa- it says this of Daniel in verse 10 of chapter 6. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, this was a, a document, a law, prohibiting anyone to ask anything of anyone or anything for a span of time. Very broadly worded document, broadly worded law. We could talk more about that before, but it was specifically designed to trap Daniel. But he hears that this document has been signed, prohibiting him to pray to his God. It says, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He's an old man now at this point, maybe in his 80s. He came there as a teenager. He's now probably in his 80s. And it says, He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. The phrase I want you to latch on to here is he's now a man in his 80s. And when it says, as he had done previously, he is, this is describing a habit in his life that was observable. Uh, His enemies knew that he had this habit, always had, of praying three times a day, and this was a habit that he had. This is different from a resolve in that he's building into his life certain spiritual disciplines, habits. Maybe there's some overlap with the idea of a resolve, but this is a distinct conversation that we're having. In addition to purposing in your heart that I'm not going to go along with this wicked thing that the society is going to pressure me to do, I am going to go along with God in building certain disciplines, repetitions in my life that will help me maintain. By the way here, there is a two-pronged assault that we see in the book of Daniel. In the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see them being punished for refusing to do a wicked thing. And here in Daniel's story, Daniel in the lion's den, he is now being persecuted and punished for doing a righteous thing. And this is the twin-pronged assault of the culture on people of conscience. 
One, you must do the wicked thing. You must speak the wicked lie as though it were truth. You must do what we say you should do. You must pay homage. You must bow down. And cut out the whole other stuff. (laughs) This is the twin-pronged assault. Daniel is being persecuted for doing a righteous thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are punished for not doing a wicked thing. Something that's interesting to me is that throughout the story of Daniel, his exceptional qualities were linked in the minds of both the king and his enemies to his unique relationship with his God. In verse 5, the other officials who hated him, and they did hate him, by the way. Uh, First of all, this law was designed just to trap him. And what was the punishment? Take a man in his 80s and throw him into a ditch filled with lions. His enemies wrote that punishment. That's just pure hatred. If you just want the man removed, you would say, if anybody breaks this law, they have to be banished from the realm. They can't hold public office, whatever. But no, they said, if anybody breaks this law, you got to be thrown into a pit filled with lions. (laughs) This is pure hatred. Why did they hate him? I think for the same reason that Cain hated Abel because his deeds were righteous. Uh, Daniel was like a living accusation. He made them uncomfortable. I think all black sheep feel better when white sheep become dirty gray. And Daniel just refused to eat the food. He refused to do any of these things. He refused to go along to get along. He refused the bribes, and they hated him for it. And this comes out here, by the way, in, in the way that they structure this bogus law and to ensnare him. But they link him in their minds with his God. In verse 5, the other officials reasoned, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. We're going to bend the levers of power in the state. We're going to create laws that bring this God follower, into opposition with followers of Nebuchadnezzar. This is a well-worn strategy of the enemy. Do you see it even now growing in our own culture? Can you imagine a day where the laws of our God, following that, will be brought into opposition with the laws of the state? It does not take much imagination in the America of 2022. This is what Daniel is facing. We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And in verse 16, the king will say to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. So to both his enemies and his friends alike, they see that what set Daniel apart was his faith in God. And today, oh my goodness, there is such a need for Christian employees, employers, neighbors, students, teachers, people from all walks of life and every corner of society to live in a way that makes people think of God. We are to exist as living reminders of Jesus in the midst of those relationships. And I shudder to think of how often I fail in this regard. But I want to be, I want to be. And in verse 10, we see Daniel turn toward God with the ease of a reflex. This turning towards God in prayer is a well-worn path in Daniel's inner world. 
And in this verse, we are allowed to see some amazing things about Daniel's inner world. For example, Daniel feared God, not man. Think about, again, all that, again, it's a small thing, but all Daniel had to do to avoid punishment was close the curtain. That's it. He could have still prayed and nobody would have been the wiser. But it was his practice to pray with the window open. He'd done it since he was a kid. Or he could have just skipped that day. Again, is this really a hill worth dying on? It was a really uncomfortable conversation that the church had to have in the midst of COVID. Still, maybe too, too soon to even talk about. Still too raw a conversation for the church. But how important is this thing that we gather? And for what will we forsake it? We're still wrestling with that. It's a tough conversation. It's not easy. But it does bring at home the kind of difficult questions that will arise in the life of the church. All Daniel had to do was close the curtain or go to a different room. But he refused to change practice because that would have shown greater deference to Nebuchadnezzar than to his God. This is a man who refused to eat the king's food when he was a teenager. And we still see the same man of purposeful resolve living out his life of faith in this moment. If we are every bit as careworn and greedy, as covetous and grasping, if we are every bit as dependent on the pleasures and fascinations of this passing world as the world is, won't people begin to question if the claims of Christianity are true? Daniel's worship in prayer puts on display this inner treasuring of God. It puts on display God as Lord over his life. John 17, 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. If I was Daniel's parents, I would have prayed, God, bring him back. But Jesus, with a heart that's infinitely greater for his, prays, God, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them with your holding power, keep them from the evil one in the midst of it. Daniel, amazingly, is not out of Babylon, but God here gives him the capacity for an obedience that, frankly, I question I would have the steel to show. But the main thing I think we should see here is that Daniel's worship was habitual. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God as he had done previously. In 1 Corinthians 9, we read this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run as a man running aimlessly. I do not fight as a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I may not be disqualified for the prize. In this passage, Paul compares the Christian life to the disciplined life of an Olympic athlete. 
Uh, my favorite athlete growing up was Daryl Green. He was not an Olympian. He was a cornerback for the Washington Redskins, now the Washington Commanders. Well, he never played for the Commanders, but uh, he was uh, one of the fastest men in the NFL, and he was blindingly fast. There's a great scene, you can look it up on YouTube, where Tony Dorsett, then running back for the Dallas Cowboys, breaks off down the sidelines, and from the other side of the field, and about 20 yards back, he cuts diagonally across the field, catches up with Dorsett, and tackles him before the touchdown. Fastest man in the NFL. And he said that he had a coach early on, I'm talking like when he was in Pop Warner kind of football, little kid stuff, who said that he needed to prepare for his right now moment. And his coach's advice was everything from what you eat to your exercise to your studying of the game, you are going to, in all these small disciplines, going to be building a life that will prepare you for when you have a chance to shine in the big times. And Daryl Green took that advice. He ate right, he ran, he studied the games, he showed up for practice, he lived a disciplined life pursuing his dream of becoming a professional football player. And the day came where there was a talent scout in the stands. He had his right now moment, lo loads of them. But his observation was that, that those big moments on the big screen were built on a life of small, repetitious disciplines, running eating, practicing, lifting weights. And my conviction is that when I look at my own personal life, I don't see that kind of Daryl Green discipline in the pursuit of spiritual things all the time. But I do see it in Daniel, as he had done it previously, it says. An Olympic athlete is totally committed Bending all of his will, his efforts, his resources, his prayers, his time and energies, all his days under the sun, even his relationships toward the prize. The author of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Wasn't Jesus talking about the disciplined, single-minded pursuit of God-given things when he said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God? Or when he said in Luke 14, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Or, if, or when he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. It's clear from these and other verses that God does not will for his church to run aimlessly or to fight like people beating the air. The Christian life is built on certain disciplines. And the best time to start those disciplines is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. And maybe today is 20 years from something that you're going to really need to have done that. So that's why we bring it up this morning. We see it in Daniel. We see it in his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Brothers and sisters, there is a long and sustained assault on your conscience. There is a deliberate attempt to retrain you away from biblical ways of thinking and doing 
There are profound cultural pressures that even now are moving against your homes, your children, your own mind, and your heart. And if we have any hope, I think, of being a Daniel or a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's or raising those kinds of people, we should give some thought to forming some good resolves. Give some thought to what you're willing to suffer. Give some thought to forming good friendships. We all need them. We all need others to help us as we're stumbling our way home to God through all this wreckage that we're trying to navigate well. And we need to form some good habits, some disciplines upon which the Christian life is meant to be built. How is it going in terms of spending time in God's Word? How's your prayer life? How is small groups? Uh, these sorts of things are important for us as if we're going to be living with a countercultural courage in the days ahead. So those are the three things this morning. Form some good resolves, form some good Christian friendships, not at the expense of the world and your other friends, but you need that in order to go be a faithful witness to them, and form some good habits, some good disciplines in your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the lives of these men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Father, I thank you for their example to us. I thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness in the small things. And Father, I pray that we would dare to be like them. God, we can feel, at least I think we can, I think I have a sense, Lord, that the trajectory of things here in the culture is not, is not good. But, Father, you are good and you're with us. And, Father, this is just a more dramatic backdrop for your church to stand up. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us hearts of courage. Father, I pray that you would, through the Holy Spirit, give us insight into the resolves that we need to form, the things we need to purpose in our heart. Father, I pray that you would bring alongside each one traveling companions for this leg of the journey who would help us to stand when we're tempted to kneel or bow down. Father, help us to be good friends to one another. And Father, I pray that you would uh, grow us in these areas of spiritual disciplines, spending time in your word that we might be shaped by it, sanctified by it, spending time with you in prayer, seeking out, Lord, your people as a community, as a culture within this culture, and submitting ourselves in accountability to it. Father, I'm thankful for these lessons from the book of Daniel, and I pray that we would go out from here and live them. And I pray this, God, I pray as we do, God, that you would help us to be like a living reminder of Jesus in the midst of this culture, and that many who are far off would come into the kingdom of light and join us as your followers. Father, we love the world, those who are in it. We share your heart for the lost. We desire to represent you well. Help us to be more and more like Jesus in the midst of these days and this culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.